All right, you ready? Yes, sir. All right. Today is November 10th, 2014, and this is episode 92 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Wow, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little concerned. Good evening, Jerry. How you doing? I'm doing very good. How are you? Uh, I'm thinking I don't have the same chemicals in my bloodstream that you have. That, that is certainly true. And <laughs> I, I am very, very sad that you didn't share. Well, that would be illegal and immoral. <laughs> and the speed limit is the only law that I break regularly. That is. <laughs> uh, okay. Right. Well, we we just, we just won't talk about that three-year-old that you beat down the other day, which uh, led to this whole hand injury. That's true. We don't. I asked you not to talk about that. Oh, well, we'll edit that out. It'll be fine. fine. All right. So, uh, yeah. Speaking of that, the thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our respective employers, uh, past, present, or future, or that's even true. future after that. Or perhaps even those in a multiverse in a different universe of ours that we may work for in that universe again. Not yeah, represent. totally. So totally. for those who don't know, uh, Jerry had a had an incident with his hand that required a wee bit of surgery, and now he's on some interesting pain medication. So if this podcast sounds a little different, I'm sorry. It's the Jimi Hendrix version of Cherry Bell. I'm sorry. So, so yeah. So, uh, stories. Let's let's do a story. <laughs> let's let's do. Nobody, a story. nobody cares about my hand. I do. I care. Thank you. You know, people care. It's been a quiet week, though. Aside from Home Depot, we don't we don't have a lot this week. No, it it has been uh, has been a pretty quiet week. Although there's a there's a few interesting ones that uh, interesting stories that came out. First of which comes from Security Week. The story is titled North Carolina Dermatology Center discovers hacked server two years after attack. So this, uh, this center, uh, central dermatology center apparently, uh, back on September 25th of 2014 discovered that one of their servers had been compromised and, uh, uh, in the ensuing investigation, they discovered that the, uh, quote, attack happened on August 9th, 2012. And, uh, you know, there's really not a lot of detail on how it came to be. They they recognized this uh, server was hacked. And I, by the way, I think by hacked, they mean it was infected with some malware. And they do go on to say that it's, you know, it's certainly disturbing that the antivirus program they had on to stop the malware didn't stop the malware Shocking. I know, it's very shocking. Uh, but, but what's more interesting is they don't really seem to have a good handle on what might or might not have been taken. That's, this whole story is full of fail. <laughs> but it's also full of, I think, a common situation. Yes. 
Absolutely. So, um, you know, again, I think as with many of these stories, right, it's very, very difficult to guard against everything. We don't have any detail on or context on how this happened, right? We don't know where they using the server to browse the internet or, or check email or, you know, we, we just don't, we don't have any of that context. But again, uh, two years, right? It took actually a little over two years and they didn't detect it, right? So I'm assuming that, you know, somebody probably called them up and said, hey, your data's floating around. Maybe you should go look at it. Uh, but this kind of goes back to the point that you really, uh, not you necessarily, but we as an industry really need to focus on the ability to detect these things proactively and, and not rely solely on protection. Yeah. That, you know, this goes back to, I'm wondering if this is a, a bit of a, a smaller organization based on the, the limited description we have. And it makes, it's a lot tougher for those guys. Absolutely. They don't have dedicated staff. They don't have high-end tools. But in general, I think this is endemic of most of organizations, which how would you know? If, if your entire focus is on prevention, which is a bias we've had in this industry for a long time, and you're not investing in detection, how would you know if you had malware running around doing something. Now, in this case, we have no idea how bad this malware is. We have no idea if it's, you know, phoning home as part of a botnet. We have no idea if there's remote command control going on. This could be just, you know, some crappy little virus for all we know. But the point is, and the reason why I think this story is interesting, is, is this is not to pick on this particular company. It's to point out that this is happening over and over and over again. Our detection times are terrible across the board on most of the surveys I've read. And this shows, yet again, that we as an industry need to pivot into more of a detection and containment model, and we are sucking at picking up these incidents. You know, and I completely agree with everything you said, and I think you hit on an interesting point that was probably pretty subtle, and maybe it's just because I'm spaced out right now that it makes sense to me. Uh, this is probably a small company. And, you know, it's easy, and I, I'll use air quotes right here, it's easy for smaller companies to set up the preventive things. They can install antivirus, they can, you know, do the whole set it and forget it crap that everybody does. Um, but I, I would imagine in, in a smaller, con- you know, the context of smaller organizations, the, you know, the, the, the detection is probably harder because it's, di- it's more difficult and, um, or it's, it's more labor intensive, let's say, or, or resource intensive. Um, and that, that kind of goes back to a discussion I've been having with one of our listeners, uh, Chris, who, who works at an outsourcing company, LinkState, by the way. So, uh, ah, yes. he works at an outsourcing company that supports a bunch of, uh, um, smaller organizations, you know, and, and it, it seems to me like, you know, and I'm not, I'm certainly not, uh, pushing people to this way, right? But it seems to me like you're you're probably going to end up having to go that route to to get the economies of scale as a you know as a customer, right? To to get the economy of scale to do some of these things right. That's just an observation that I'm kind of shooting from the hip on. Yeah, it's interesting, right? And we've also pointed out though that the problem with outsourcing your security is Manyfold. 
so that there's a there's a careful balance in there. Um, ah, that's true. It brings up brings a whole other spate of problems up. Certainly, yeah. No, no good. Uh, you know, no good answers. But, but, <laughs> but I think you know. Th- this is. Uh, I think the reason we wanted to include this is because, like you said, it is becoming typical of of the problems we're seeing. So. Yeah, later in the in this particular article, it talks about a report put up on Mandiant, who I think is pretty credible in this area, and they're saying that on average they found breaches were discovered in 229 days in 2013. And I, I do want to make sh- want to make sure that everybody gets the point. That's the average, right? <laughs> so, right. There's that's, a- that's the average that a were detected at all. B Mandiant were involved with. With in in investigating, so well, I guess my my point is there's there's probably a lot that are a lot shorter, but there's probably also a lot that are that takes significantly longer. So yeah, and unfortunately, we don't have any details on how this particular breach occurred or what these individuals in this organization could have done differently. But yep. I think we we beat the relevant point into the ground. Absolutely. So moving on to our next story f- comes from Krebs Online. This is a follow-up to Home Depot. So, uh, you know, the, it, it, I find it very interesting that all of the headlines in this past week about Home Depot have been around the 53 million emails. So the, the big headline here is, big new news, I should say, is that 53 million email addresses were were also stolen Along with the credit card information, and and I guess this is coming out of some recent investigation that's been going on into the into the breach. Um, but kind of second fiddle to that is what I think is certainly the more interesting thing, which is how it happened. And you know, certainly there's a lot of detail we don't have, but what we do have is kind of interesting. And what what Home Depot has uh, has publicly said now is that. The attackers got into Home Depot's network using a user ID and password from one of Home Depot's vendors, which is, you know, it sounds a whole lot like Target, doesn't it? Yeah, seriously. I I feel like we're getting a lot less transparency out of Home Depot than we did Target at this point. I. And from what I understand, also Home Depot said this is the last update of any details they plan to give. Yeah, I noticed that too. That was really classy. <laughs> I was like, well, thanks. That's great. Thanks. That that makes show prep easier. Uh, yeah, so here we go again. Third-party vendor. Connections into the system. Somehow one of their credentials was stolen. Somehow that was leveraged to get inside and then go laterally. Right. And, uh, and they, they point out that the Home Depot is apparently pretty careful to point out that, you know, it wasn't just stealing the credentials, right? Because the stealing the credentials didn't give access to the point of sale devices. They actually had to, uh, you know, to get through, to go through another system. And, and I'll quote that. For that, they had to turn to a vulnerability in Microsoft Windows that was patched only after the breach had occurred according to a story in Thursday's Wall Street Journal. So, um, so you know, again, this, I think, kind of goes back to a drum I've been beaten on for quite some time about threat modeling and relying on, relying very heavily on points of isolation or separation 
that aren't necessarily as effective as we think they are. And, and I see this time, you know, especially Bob sees this time and time again in his work in investigating breaches that, you know, organizations and, and, and architects, IT architects, uh, they don't really plan or, or even have this conception or a conception that, let's say, you know, an attacker could jump onto your, your domain controller and then get from there to some, some other network and, and hop around laterally in the network. That just, that whole thought process seems absent, uh, when a lot of, when a lot of these networks and systems are being designed. And, and I think that is a fundamental issue that leads to some of these bigger breaches. I mean, certainly it was the case in Target. Looks like it's the case here. And, uh, anyway, uh, Bob tells me it's been the case in lots of, uh, lots of things he's looked at too. So. No, I think you make a fine point there. And clearly we didn't have good segmentation. We didn't have good controls. Uh, I'm having a lot of trouble understanding why this vendor connection had any reason to be able to talk to anything that could potentially talk to their payment, uh, you know, sort of infrastructure. It's also an interesting couple of interesting side notes on this as well that I saw. And I, this seems like a really odd thing to throw out there, but for whatever reason, it was said that they only went after the self-serve, self-checkout systems because they were identified as such in some sort of listing system. Whether that was Hack Me One through Hack Me Seven D five hundred, apparently. Yeah, I don't know if that was uh, internal DNS. I don't know if that was AD, but somehow they were identified in some sort of asset management as these particular retail self checkout systems. Whereas the main point of sale that had an actual person there with an apron were only identified by number, and therefore the hackers didn't know to go after those. <laughs> it, you know. I find that interesting too. I actually find a couple of things interesting. It's just to give the listeners some sense of scale. Apparently the 7500 self checkout, uh, point of sale terminals were, were what was compromised here. And the 70,000 other manual point of sale terminals were, were, as you said, apparently ignored by the attackers. But here's where I think kind of blows my mind, right? Target had um you know had less credit card numbers stolen right and it was essentially all of their point of sale terminals home depot and i think the time frames were r- roughly the same i mean maybe it was a month or two different th- as far as the duration of the breach but it was only home depot's self checkouts and they had more credit cards stolen than all of of target, which I find really, really interesting. And I, and it just kind of tells me that their, their transaction volume must be a lot higher than, than target. I don't know why that matters a damn bit for a security podcast, but you know, there you go. Um, <laughs> so yes, in, um, I guess kind of maybe interesting to some, but anyway, back on actual interesting things. This, this uh, ow, is, ow, what, ow. This, this is when Jerry kicks me off the show. Side note. It's been that, great having you on. <laughs> I'll just, uh, I'll just show myself out. Um, so apparently, and this is, uh, not in the article that we have linked, but I can send this to you as well. Uh, after this initial breach was discovered, 
they didn't know how widespread this was. And so one of their reactions was to blame Windows as inherently insecure. And they went out and bought MacBooks and iPhones for all their key execs. Oh, my God. Wow. So... So they bought two dozen new "quote unquote" secure iPhones and MacBooks for senior executives, who referred to them new devices as "quote bat phones." <laughs> I that that is awesome. So I just have to point out that that is a really naive way to look at this. Now, first of all, having a non you know homogeneous environment is a good thing. Because an exploit against one cannot be an exploit against another, typically. However, what I don't know and what this is sort of implying to me is that they just knee-jerked and said, Windows isn't secure, let's go Mac. Because Mac is secure. Do do you also hear circus music? (laughs) I, I don't know. I wasn't in the boardroom when that decision was made. But if they're going on the assumption that Mac is just inherently more secure, gang, I hate to break it to you. Yeah. It has a lot to do with, with market share. I'm not saying that Windows doesn't have some default bad things that, you know, iOS or, or, or OS X does inherently certain things better and Windows is copying. You know, I'm not saying that there isn't some benefit and that we can't look at stats and we can't see, you know, that at the end of the day, Mac has less tax against. But the point is, a lot of that had to do with market share and what the bad guys were willing to target because it got them the best bang for the buck. And now that Mac and iPhones are starting to rise up in market share, we're seeing a lot more attacks against them. Yep. So I'm not saying it's not more difficult against a Mac. I'm not saying that it's you know the same as Windows, but I'm saying that there is no inherent automatic safety when it comes to a Mac. And in many ways, I see a default against running some of the same prevention technology to Mac that we've gotten used to running on Windows. So it spooks me that everyone... Not everyone. Some people still have this feeling that Macs are inherently secure and don't need antivirus and don't need HIPs and don't need DLP, et cetera, et cetera. So why do people rob banks? Because uh, that's where the money is. Yeah. Why do people write viruses for Windows? Because that's where the people are. Because the Russian government tells them to. That's, well, I mean, I, guess, the there's, I guess there's that. <laughs> so the point of my mini rant is... Once again, it tells me the decision-making going on at senior levels of Home Depot is suspect. Yeah, yeah. I, I hadn't heard that story previously. That, that does shine an interesting light into the thought process, the thought processes going on there. Yeah, I'm, I'm referencing it from a story that was on uh, 9to5mac.com. I'll shoot it to you for the show notes. But uh, Okay. Um, interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, in related news, before we jump off this topic, uh, Target named a new chief risk and compliance officer. And this one wasn't from Home Depot, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, reporting directly to uh, the chairman and CEO. So fallout continues. Yeah. What? At, uh, I- at Target. I I did see that headline. I, what I what I wasn't clear on is that a net new position or was that a was that a replacement? Uh they re they they previously had somebody in the position of vice president 
assurance risk and compliance who retired. Uh, uh, so it okay. is a replacement. However, the role has been elevated to reporting directly to the CEO, which it did not have in the past. Interesting. You know, I, whatever you want to say, I, I think Target has done a pretty good job of of um, responding organizationally, right? I mean, they're they they seem like they're moving their marbles around in in the right directions. So, I would concur. I I I am hoping that more details come out on Home Depot in terms of how the hack occurred, their response, etc. I do appreciate target transparency. We can learn from it. Uh, and I think they're probably doing the right thing from a credibility standpoint. Whereas with Home Depot, I feel like they're being very insular and very um, opaque in, as to what is going on and why and how, uh, and somewhat arrogant in their approach to this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I will never now be hired by Home Depot. <laughs> oh, well. Moving on. Our next story comes from CSO Online, and the title is Six Things We Learned from This this Year's Security Breaches. These are always good. And it's not a slideshow, which I appreciate. It, it's, it's not a slideshow. That's good. <laughs> and, you know, some of it's, some of it's good. Um, so the, the first lesson... Which I think I agree with a lot of this stuff, right? It's time to start, it's time to take staffing seriously. And we've talked about this a lot. It's not about blinky boxes. You've got to have uh, good quality people to help run your organization, design your infrastructure right. You know, watch, watch for the bad guys, come up with innovative ways to protect your unique risks and things like that. So, uh, I, I completely agree with that. I don't necessarily agree with some of the subtext, you know, like the um, 49% of senior security roles are vacant. And, you know, sometimes I think, to be per- to be perfectly blunt, and maybe it's the Viking and I don't know, but I think a lot of times those things are thrown out there for the purposes of um, of lobbying. I will say that I'm a bit more accepting of that stat. I have seen okay. a lot of companies begging for talent okay. and having a, a, a tough time finding bodies. I don't know if it's 49%, uh, but I definitely agree that we are understaffed. Now, this is also 49% of approved open recs, where I've seen a lot of organizations that don't even have enough budget so that they don't have the racks to have an adequate sized team. So I would take it one step further, and I'd say a lot of companies don't have an adequate sized team to begin with from a budget standpoint, much less being able to find good, competent people. Fair enough. I'm, I'm happy to be wrong. I'll, uh, well, I, you, I don't you know. have more exposure to, uh, you know. I, I don't know if that 49% stat is accurate or not, um, but I, I definitely see almost every company I talk to uh, is 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 looking for good security engineers. Yeah, fair point. But you know, the, it further goes on to then start attacking uh, the pay scale and budgets around that. Yeah, now that that part I can believe. You know, I think um, it, it's interesting because IT. You know, I've been in IT now for way too long, and. I, I see IT as an industry commoditizing, and I think where we are having some problems is that, inf- you know, 
Java programmers, uh, you know, I'm, it's not a slight on Java programmers. It's just that a lot of those skills have become very commoditized and you can buy them everywhere, you know, and, and security, I, I think, I think management of a lot of companies are frustrated that the same co- rules of commoditization haven't yet applied to security. And so, you know, they're, it's still demanding a premium right now. Maybe it will for a long time. I don't know. So uh, their next point is know your code. Um, you know, of course, they have the obligatory reference to everybody trying to figure out where the heck they have OpenSSL to patch Heartbleed and uh, you know and, and Bash for Shellshock. Uh, but they're one of their interesting points, which I think is a good, a good valid thing to consider, is that you know when when uh, I guess this is really probably more, most prominent in larger organizations that run uh, you know, or that develop their own enterprise applications and, and whatnot, you know, you, you're not usually writing things from the ground up completely. You, you are integrating lots of other components. And so one of the, one of the challenges you have is, is making sure you understand where all those components are. And I saw this firsthand in, uh, you know, in, in particularly in Heartbleed, with with companies, and you know, Bob told me some interesting stories about, you know, a company that he was working with has lots and lots of uh, of software, and trying to figure out, you know, where all OpenSSL is is being used is a very challenging thing. So. I personally, I think there's probably some opportunities to have made that a little easier, but eh, whatever. Uh, number three is pen tests are lies, which is you know, hey, that's that's kind of clickbaity, right? Yeah, it sure is. But it's also something that I um, somewhat agree with. Yeah, and uh, but I I I. I reserve the balance of my time to come back and qualify <laughs> and explain that comment. Well, the reasons why. I, so, so I agree with the in the in the light that this is this point is presented. I do agree. So their uh, their point is that a lot of pen tests run by a lot of organizations have very uh, very well delineated boundaries, and uh, attackers who might target you don't have those very well delineated boundaries and it's kind of all, you know, the gloves are off. They can go wherever they want and do whatever they, whatever they want, whenever they want. And, and so from that perspective, a lot of organizations, and I, you know, I kind of have this, this concern a lot too, get a false sense of security when they run a pen test and, you know, they might have a, you know, look, one thing I want to point out, if you have a pen test that has no findings, you you should probably find a, a different <laughs> company to do your pen test. Just my advice. Um, but you know you so you have your pen test and you find some stuff and you fix your stuff, and then you have this this warm fuzzy feeling, right? But uh, you know, that that doesn't necessarily mean that you are in fact uh, secure. It's you know it is uh, given the boundaries that you applied and the the talent that uh, that the testers brought to to bear and and a number of other factors, you know, you, you 
my my concern would be that you get a false sense of security. I don't know. You you have some thoughts, so go ahead. Yeah, I could go on for a while here. So, full disclosure, I work for a company that does pen tests. I sell pen tests. I help companies do pen tests. I'm not saying pen tests are bad. I'm saying that there's a lot of limitations around them that you need to understand. So, you mentioned on one of them, there are artificial constraints. I've seen this over and time and time again. Companies will put things off limits. They will say that's too fragile. They will put constraints around what the pen testers can can and cannot do, which, of course, the bad guys aren't going to have that concern. Uh, there's also budgetary limits. There's a certain amount of time and energy and effort that a pen test will expend uh, that's being purchased. Bad guys typically don't have those monetary time limits, uh, so they can keep poking as long as they want, as often as they want, if they really, really care about you as a target, uh, whereas a pen tester is going to spend two weeks or whatever it is and then move on because at the end of the day, they're expensive resources and a company only has X amount of budget to spend on these things. Um, there is certainly limits around how valid that information is over time. A pen test, even if done perfectly, is a snapshot in time test. So as soon as you make a change in that environment, whether it's adding uh, new accounts, it's uh, changing some firewall rules, deploying a new version of software, uh, whatever it may be, you've now changed the environment and it may or may not still be valid. So I think pen tests are definitely useful. It gets people's attention. It's sexy. It's visceral. Uh, people react to it. It shows obvious things. Uh, they are beneficial. But there are limitations around them. And I think there's a nuance around pen tests uh, that some people miss. And, and I, I promote pen tests. I, I like them. But I would say that in some ways, doing an overall comprehensive security audit of your entire infrastructure rather than a black box pen test is can get you more bang for the buck. It's looking at everything. It's looking at how your systems talk to each other and what controls are between them and how different, um, you know, threat vectors could come in. And, you know, there's a much different ways to do it, but pen tests are also mandated by compliance. So they're always going to be with us. And I'm not, again, just because I've gotten my ass handed to me or at least attempted in the past on this point when people misunderstood me, I'm not saying Pentas are bad. I'm saying Pentas have limitations, and and we need to understand those limitations to know how to appropriately utilize them. Oh, I think that was very well said. Um, I, yeah, you know, what do you know? You're stoned. Uh, totally. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I think I think you know one important thing that uh, that I'll add, and maybe it was implied in what you've already said, is, is that. Uh, Pen tests are great at finding things that are wrong, right? But the absence of a finding doesn't really mean anything. And so Correct. you need to, I think for what it is, it is a great thing. But you have to understand that, it, you know, there are so many factors that go into, uh, you know, in, you, you could you could get hacked that, you know, an hour after the pen test completes. And, you know, and it's just that... The people running the test didn't have the same background as the as, as the person who ended up hacking you, uh, but you know quite often I've never seen a never seen a pen test where they didn't find something pretty significant wrong, and and so from that perspective, it's good, right? And another thing that I would say, and I know this is 
may be controversial for those of us who work at companies that offer pen testing services, you, you might want to rotate. You know, you, you might not want to have the same company or at least the same team doing your pen test all the time because you're just going to get, you know, this, the same kind of view. And I think there's some value in sh- in shaking it up, getting different people who have a different view, different skill sets and sure. whatnot. So anyway. Absolutely. Right? No, because this is, you know, a pen test can be done a thousand different ways at a thousand different levels. Uh I'm not in any way pimping my company, but, uh, you know, when we go in to start talking about, um, doing a pen test against a web app, we have three different default levels that we can start that discussion at and then customize from there. And every different pen tester and pen test company have a different set of skills and a different set of tools and a different methodology and different deliverables. And, um, you know, this is not like getting an oil change. It's not done the same way everywhere. No. So yeah, I would say absolutely. It's if you really care, um, you know, don't do one pen test a year and think you're done. Right. And, and by the way, I guess just to, just to keep piling on, right. If, if you are mandated to get a pen test, you may as well make it good. You know, like don't, <laughs> everybody has different incentives in life, I guess. And we have to be cognizant of that. But, uh, you know, if, if you, if you're going to have to pay for a pen test anyway, look for an opportunity to maximize the utility in that. You know, that's, it's an opportunity, yeah. right? So anyway, kick that one to death. Uh, the, ne- the next item was physical security meets cybersecurity. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. You know, you, you can, uh, you know, if you have weak, weak physical security, it's easy to drop key loggers and, and kind of vice versa. You know, you can hack the badge system and let yourself in. So, that's I think pretty uh, pretty straightforward. Uh, here's where it starts getting interesting from my perspective. Number five is plan for failure part one. So you know, we talk a lot about this, and their their point here is that a lot of companies are really starting to think about uh, you know what what can we do to mitigate the impact of our data being breached because. You know, the the implication here is that companies, some companies at least, are starting to become resigned to the fact that they're probably going to lose data. So, looking at strategies like tokenization and encryption and and things like that. And of course, you know nobody ever encrypts things wrong or leaves the encryption keys right next to the never encrypted data. Never, never seen it happen. Uh, number six, plan for failure, part two. Um, so, you know, this is, uh, you know, again, looking at, um, looking at the bigger, the bigger picture. So, uh, one of the quotes here is, even if you have the best security in place, there's still a chance that you may be breached. Um, and, you know, they, they talk about, uh, target, you know, targets lost their CEO and CIO. Uh, it's questionable whether it was totally related to the breach or not. Uh, but, you know, you need to have a plan in place from, not, not from a, uh, you know, not, not from necessarily a data perspective, but from a organizational response perspective. What are you going to do? Do you have your PR and marketing lined up? Are you going to take the target approach or are you going to take the Home Depot approach? Are you, are you going to wait till Friday at 5, at 5 p.m. to, 
announce, you know, what, what's your strategy going to be? So that's their, uh, that's their point there. And, uh, our last story, this, this was actually asked, uh, by one of our listeners on Twitter. I'm going to go find their, their Twitter handle here. It was asked by, oh, where was it at? Uh, Tom Wills to, uh, to cover this story. And the title is, uh, first off, it's from netsecurity.org. The title is Aligning Risk Analysis and IT Security Spending. This, I, I wanted, I really wanted to talk about this one after I read it because it is something I, I feel very strongly about. And, you know, the, the net of it is that, uh, you know, we talk about this a lot, right? That IT security is very much like an insurance policy in many ways. And you, you really should try to the best of your ability to align the, the investments to the organizational strategy. And so they, uh, and I would go one step further to the organizational risk, you know, viewpoint. Yeah. Yep. The, 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 uh, what do they call that? The, the risk appetite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also, not just strategy, right? But uh, you have to take that into account. But also, what risks is the company willing to take? Uh, and, and what level do they want to mitigate those risks to versus the inconvenience and the cost and all that kind of jazz, right? Yeah, certainly. So so uh, they have a, an, a list of things that uh, they say are some root causes for poorly aligned risk management and IT security spending. Warning, towards the end, this shifts into a product pitch. Well, we're not going to go down that far. Yeah, I'm just saying for people reading it. Yeah, although I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Uh, so, So just to run through this list, and we can talk about each one. Failure to broadly assess risks and to create risk registers so that significant risks are not overlooked. Um, I think a lot of larger companies, especially post, uh, post Sarbanes-Oxley have this, uh, you know, have this kind of a concept pretty well uh, embedded in their, in their company. Uh, I, I'll tell you that, you know, this process I see, it's just usually badly implemented and badly managed in a lot of organizations. And so anytime I see this called out as a recommendation, I, I get a little giggly inside because I know how it, I know how it uh, usually works. So, uh, but, but it makes sense, right? It, you, you, you do need to have an inventory of what your risks are so that your, your management team, your board of directors, can can have some view on you know what kind of risks are you ca- are you carrying? If you don't know what those are, you can't answer that question with a straight face. Uh, the next one is failures to do a deep dive analysis of the most significant risks to fully understand the probable frequency and the probable impact of future loss. And here is an. And by the way, I think that is completely sensible. Completely agree, but. I'm very skeptical that most 
organizations have the talent to do this, uh, to, at least to do it accurately. I mean, there, there's there's really two sides to that. One is to be able to understand what the actual risks are, and then the other side is to be able to turn that into probability and and impacts. Uh, I think those are. Uh, I, you know, I think a lot of organizations struggle with that. Uh, reliance on a checklist compliance culture, identifying mandatory security controls, and blindly implementing them frequently at the expense of real risk-based approach to security. You know, it's, obviously that's a slam on PCI. Amongst others. Amongst others, but mostly PS- PCI. Um, let's see. Reliance on overspending on perimeter security models and technologies when the threat environment has moved on perimeter security technologies are now st- it should be not stopping attacks and application and data centric security controls are needed to secure information the security industry principle of defense in depth is too often forgotten in practice as is the last line of defense protecting the data with strong access controls and encryption so just to jump in i i don't want to go too deep in all these because i know uh, we'll we got a lot here, but I, I want to be careful with this one, right? I, this is very much akin to the firewall is dead conversation. I don't agree with that. I think they have their place. I think that perimeter security is not stopping all attacks, but it's catching a lot of the fluff, much like AV is catching fluff. But we need to go past that, right? So that's just a nuance I want to throw out there is, is, is we can't spend our entire budget on perimeter security. We need to understand that that is a component, and then we need more beyond it. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go farther than that because I have a similar concern, and you know, I, I, I certainly am pragmatic enough to, you know, to agree that the concept of uh, of a strong perimeter is, you know, it's, I'm not gonna call it dead, right? But it is, it is, uh, you know, it is not the only thing that you need to to uh, to consider, but. Where I see a lot of problems, and, 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 and probably we haven't yet seen this manifested to the extent that it eventually will as, as this data-centric security model starts to take more, more and more hold. You know, again, we are relying on technology that is failable. And not only that, we're, we're often implementing it really badly. And so, you know, if we, uh, you know, if we rely on things that we don't understand or don't work well or immature, um, or are already things that are, you know, f- failing horribly, uh, we're, we're probably going to have big problems. And in, as an example, right, I, I love picking an Active Directory. I don't know why, but I do. It, you know, if you if you are building really granular access control policies uh, to your data, and that's you know that's you know, one of your thing, one of your your strategies to protecting your data is getting down to that element level. But you know, you don't understand how freaking easy it is for somebody to own your Active Directory environment and create accounts or t- hijack accounts. You know, that whole concept is is garbage because you know they they've just completely circumvented it, and so. That's my concern here. Um, that, in general, again, threat mod- from a threat modeling perspective, I, I fear that that we are not being very comprehensive when we think about these risks. So, anyway, that's yeah, I agree. 
That's what, that's that. Uh, next, a continued over-reliance on preventive controls without implementing the detective controls and reactive controls to quickly spot and react to security issues and limit the damage. Boy, that sounds really innovative. That's a novel thought. Totally. We should have thought of that. We should have. Um, this is why we're not writing articles. That's true. We are, we, we are thought followers. <laughs> yes. Thought followers. I like it. Reliance on in- ineffective legacy risk models and frameworks that don't quantify risk, leaving the business to try and understand high, medium, low, red, green, sorry, red, yellow, green risk ratings, which provide little help in understanding the magnitude and impact of risks and no means of evaluating the risk reduction of various mitigating or mitigation options. God damn it. I love it. <laughs> Wheel. And by the, kids, don't do drugs. <laughs> no, this is I, I I to be honest, I think this is no, I'm, I'm just teasing you. This is one of the future opportunities he, for IT here, man, IT security management. This is why I'm hesitating and hedging on this. Is because this feels like a pitch for by the way, use our framework instead. It, well, I, I was I was about to say it clearly dovetails into, yeah. uh, you know, in, into the fair. You know, fair is um, I forget the acronym, right? But fair is a very widely known uh, risk framework for so, IT. What I completely agree with is that high, medium, low, red, yellow, green risk ratings are complete BS because they don't take into account anything about the local security posture, risk posture, culture, company concerns, or anything like that. They, they, are, they are a completely subjective, irrelevant measure unless you have taken those findings and rated them intelligently and competently against your own organization's risk tolerance and risk posture. Right. It's like earlier, they were talking about, you know, understand the probable frequency and probable impact. Uh, okay, you can give a shot at that, but, but at the same time, we can't necessarily predict, uh, everything that's going to happen, right? We can, we can make some choices of what a likely avenue attack is, but then, you know, we got to make sure we're not missing smaller avenues, right? Yeah. And that's, and I think that's one of the, that's one of the points, and and one of the one of the big issues because this is this is something that I that I personally am really really interested in, and you know when, when you look at things through the lens of the high, medium, low, red, yellow, green, you miss a lot of nuance, and you you it becomes very opaque as to you know should you should you address. Uh, two, you know, should you spend the money to address two mediums or one high? Or, you know, there, it, whereas if you have a better, if you, if you have a way to quantify these things, you are much better off because now you understand in, in more objective terms what, wh- where your money is best spent. And that's, by the way, this is a really hard thing, right? Yes. This is not an easy thing. And I, but I think, I think this is kind of in my in my view this is the end state or or you know further you know much more mature state of IT security and I and I honestly think that people who 
start innovating in this area are are going to have are going to be in real strong demand from company or by companies because you know going back to this is all commoditizing we want to make sure we are spending our money in the most effective and efficient way possible and right now security and and a lot of IT is kind of like tradecraft you know you're people are are saying well you know here's how i think we should do it and yep. it's it's uh you know it's and you know i'm not necessarily saying that we're doing a terrible job i mean sometimes we are sometimes we're not but it's you know we're we're certainly not optimized let's let's say that um and then uh, the last point they have here is the point in time nature of risk analysis provides further challenging or provides a further challenge in maintaining alignment with security. The fact is, the components c- comprising risk change over time as threats change, the value of assets change, control effectiveness changes. Moving risk management programs towards a real time risk posture should be the goal. While recognizing this is a hard problem to solve, you know these last two points. By the way, I will tell you i think are certainly dovetailing into what they're trying to sell but i think the point is is relevant right i mean this is these are these are uh attributes of mature companies yeah i would agree um and And, you know at the end of the day Judy, the only thing i would say in here is that you still how do i want to say this no matter how smart your framework is, no matter how clever your, you know, your, your risk analysis approach is, it still takes a smart person marrying those threats and those risks and that measurement up against the company. 100%. And this is, yeah, this is not something you can just simply automate and simply, you know, just say, well, we ran it through the, through the framework, and it came out as an 82. Right? Right. At the end of the day, you, know, you still need to have somebody with a clue look at that and make sure that it makes sense against your organization. Absolutely. Now, I'll, I'll give you one quick example, right? You, you know, you run a firewall audit tool, just as a random example, and it throws up and, and flags and, and just has a conniption fit over a, a rule on your, on your firewall that allows a server to talk to anything with any service. And it says, you should never, ever, ever have this in your environment. Well, hey, what if that's my vulnerability management tool? What if that's my scanning tool? I need that. I've made a decision for that. Yeah. So, again, these third-party objective or subjective decisions about your environment, they are a guidepost. They are a sanity check. And it may not even be these things that, that are the real risks. So the only reason I'm sort of picking on this is, is we're still looking for that easy button. And we're still looking for just make it easy for the executives. And I think that we still need a lot of really smart people deeply embedded into the IT organizations on a day-to-day basis to get this right. I, I completely agree. And in fact, I, I would say to do... What I was describing, right? We need even more smart people. This is, this is not something that you just, you, you, you create a spreadsheet and then you hire a data entry person to run forevermore. You know, the, to get to that level of maturity and maintain that level of maturity takes, you know, 
takes some very smart people, both on, you know, uh, arguably the actuarial side, I would call it actuarial science, right? And the information security side to be able to understand your specific organization, what's going on. And, you know, that this is not, this is definitely not an easy button. And I think anybody that thinks of it isn't as an easy button is going to have a bad day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's continual reassessment too, right? right. It's, Things change every day. Your company changes. Their goals change. The risk posture changes. The market opportunities change. The technology changes. The people change. Absolutely. The culture changes. It's a constant reassessment and, and shifting of all of this. Absolutely. I think we are on the same page there. So that is the stories for this week. You know, there were some other things. The post office just got hacked. The U.S. post office just got hacked. Apparently, they lost 800000 Employee records. Boy, I didn't realize they had 800,000 employees. That's a lot of... Yeah, they're huge. A lot of darn employees and, and some customers apparently who emailed them and, you know, no, no details, of course, on how it happened. And, uh, you know, bad BIOS is, uh, you know, apparently we're, we just keep incrementally, incrementally getting to that whole bad BIOS thing with the, the deal about, um, modulating your graphics card. <laughs> To, to exfiltrate data off of uh, of uh, air-gapped systems. So, you know, uh, beyond that, it was it was a relatively quiet week. So, you know, I guess we'll <laughs> guess we're uh, you know lucky for that. So, in any event, uh, that is the show for this evening. Hopefully, everybody enjoyed it. Uh, as usual, if you have any uh, any thoughts or opinions suggestions, send us an email to info at defensivesecurity.org. If you like the podcast, uh, go on iTunes and give us, you know, give us uh, some, some five-star love if you don't mind. Uh, that helps get us up, up uh, the ratings. You know, we're, we're somewhere behind like a, you know, a podcast about uh, PHP that was discontinued about nine years ago. So <laughs> if we could get a little higher, that'd be cool. Um, if you want to find the show notes with all the links to the stories and back episodes, you can go to our website, www.defensivesecurity.org. You can uh, follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lurg, and you can follow me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And with that, uh, we will uh, talk to you again next week. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks. Take care. <laughs>